The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Radiate Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, Christy Clemens Hoffman. Each week we will discuss tools, tips, and ways to radiate your best life ever, interviewing practitioners, authors, and luminaries to help you on your path. Wellness, joy, peace, abundance. What do you want to radiate? Hi, and welcome back to the Radiate Wellness Podcast. Today, we radiate power with Terry McBride, author of the book, I love this title, The Hell I Can't. <laughs> In other words, I, I imagine uh, the title being like, hold my beer while I show you. <laughs> so Terry has had a remarkable um, remarkable story of overcoming adversity and healing. And Terry, I'm so happy to have you join me today. This I've been really excited about this. How are you Thanks, doing? Christy. I've been looking forward to being with you. Good, good. Your your book is just so much fun. I was saying before we started recording it, it reads like a novel. I mean, it is just like a, telling a story, and I love it. Now, I first heard about you and your story through Pam Grout, mm-hmm. book E-Squared, mm-hmm. right? Pam's been, Pam was on episode 117 of the Radiate Wellness podcast, and uh, your story just grabbed me, and I went out and looked you up immediately. So um, let's start at the beginning. Your, your story, your book begins with this horrific incident, this illness. Can you tell us a bit about what started that? Um, I was working construction in the summer uh, between college uh, quarters and hurt my back. And uh, uh, after doing muscle relaxers and chiropractors and osteopaths, I mean, for a whole year, I finally went to an orthopedic surgeon and he did some x-rays and said, you've got a ruptured disc, we'll do a spinal fusion. Be in the hospital a couple of weeks, home a couple of weeks, wear a brace for six months would be almost as good as new. During the spinal fusion, my spine became infected with the E. coli bacteria. Oh, and that's a nasty one. 
it's a bad bug. And this was 50 years ago. So it was even worse then. And so um, he did some surgeries. The only way you could get E. coli out of the spine was to cut it out. So they were called debridements. So right. he, he did three or four debridements. And, and then the last one he did, the fifth surgery, when he opened me up, it had spread up and down the spine. It was into the pelvic area. And he said, this is way out of my league. Transferred me to the University of Washington Hospital, a big teaching hospital in Seattle. And uh, I became a real celebrity. It was the worst case of osteomyelitis, the spine, infection of the spine they'd ever seen. And my doctor became this visiting professor from England. He was supposed to be one of the top five orthopedic surgeons in the whole world. Uh, the, the professors didn't talk like that, but the interns and residents did. Anyway, he did a bunch of tests because he said, I want to find out the extent of this infection before we go in. They finally got some good x-rays. And the night before the big debridement where he was going to go in and do it, um, he came in and my six doctors came into my room. This guy from England, orthopedic surgery the head of general surgery at the University of Washington Medical Center, the head of infectious disease, and the three top residents. And this is what they said. The infection has spread up and down your spine. It's in your pelvic area. It's in your abdomen. And it's followed both of your sciatic nerves into your upper thighs. And if we don't stop it now, um, it'll become even more life-threatening. That was the word to use. Wow, six so doctors, said, that's not good. So he said, uh, what we're going to do tomorrow is we're going to um, do the most extensive debridement we've ever attempted. The First, the general surgeons are going to open you from the front. They're going to start just above your penis, come up around your belly button, and go almost up your sternum. We're going to open all that up, separate your organs out of the way, get down there and cut out the tissue. And when we get down to the spine, the orthopedic surgeons will chisel and scrape the infection out of your spine. When we're done with that, we're going to roll you over and the orthopedic surgeons are going to start. They're going to start just above your rectum, go up to mid back, open all that up, cut out all of the tissues, scrape and chisel the infection out of your spine. And when we're done with that, uh, two teams of surgeons are going to open up your buttocks and follow your sciatic nerves into your thighs to clean that out. And when we're done with that, we're going to tip you up on the end and come in between your scrotum and rectum and clean all that out. Oh, my goodness. And they were going to gut me like a dead deer. When he, anyway... Um, when the, all those guys left, the resident who had been with me for the two weeks of test, who wasn't much older than I was, um, he sat on my bed and held me. My wife was on one side with our daughter between us and the resident on the other side because I was just shaken. And when I finally calmed down, he said, we don't know what's going to happen, Terry. We've never done anything like this, but you cannot expect to come out of this one whole and that's where the name of the book came, The Hell I Can't. Mm -hmm. So that started my journey of 
you know, dealing with this spinal infection, which I had for 11 years and ended up having 27 major surgeries with a general anesthetic. I had a few with a local anesthetic. And um, now I'm going to be, I'm just about to turn 78 in a couple months and I don't have a bad back. I'm not recovering from a bad back. Um, I have none of the limitations they said I would have because I learned how to create my belief system. I learned how to create consciousness and the foundation for our uh, teaching in new thought is first that you're a spiritual being right. and second that consciousness creates reality. So the game of changing reality comes down to learning how to change consciousness and what allowed me to move into that was understanding my power and authority on this physical plane. So that's where, why we're talking about power. Because now remember, I wasn't in New Thought back then. Okay. Was, you know, a 23-year-old guy hanging out, going to college with a wife and a baby, trying to figure out life. But so it wasn't about... You know, when I would read books about just just know, hold your palms up and be receptive of the good in the universe. I was being raped and pillaged every day. And so it wasn't about smiling and knowing that all things are working together for good and all is God. It was me taking charge of my physical body because I had power and authority because that's what Jesus brought to the human race, power and authority. Right. So. Well, I love on the cover of your book, you say, it didn't matter that I had an incurable disease. It didn't matter that the odds against my getting well were a million to one. It didn't matter that some of the finest doctors in the world said I couldn't expect to come out of this ordeal whole. I was done listening. That's, and that's the key. Is you know, the first part was saying, I, I don't want to believe like you. That was, right. you know, but of course they said, well, you're in denial. You're, you're you know, you're, you, you need to accept the things that you cannot change. Mm -hmm. I mean, have you ever heard that one before? Right. And so there's that. all kinds of, you know, even in our movement, it mm -hmm. says go for your dreams unless you fail. Because if you fail enough times, then people come in with the perhaps models. Perhaps uh, God has a bigger plan for you than you just getting what you want. Perhaps there's a lesson in here that you cannot learn through any other vehicle. Me being paralyzed, living in a body that doesn't work. Perhaps this is some karmic debt that you have, and you have. So, you, so what I learned was I was just going to throw all of that stuff out the window. Right. I had power and authority. Period. So where did you learn about this power and authority? You said that, you know, being a 22, 23-year-old kid, you weren't really versed in this. Where did it come from? For me, it came from the New Testament. You know, I was raised in a, a, a Christian family. You know, I went to church. It wasn't something I did every day, as, you know, especially in my after I got into college and all that stuff. But in the New Testament, Jesus says all things are possible if you believe they are. One person with God is a majority. 
as you believe, so shall it be done unto you. Whatever you ask for in prayer, believing that you have it, you will have it. So that, that was the first book that really said all things are possible with God. And, and so that's where I started. Then I read um, Joseph Murphy's The Power of the Unconscious Mind. And so once I understood that consciousness, you know, my belief system played a huge part in my life, then I started studying how do I create a belief system? Okay, right. And so how did you go about starting something like that? I think the first step for me was saying no to what the doctors did. About two or two and a half, three years into this ordeal, they sent me to a psychiatrist in the the University of Washington Medical Center. I mean, they had all the disciplines under one roof. And he... um, he, he shared my medical records. He shared what the doctor's prognosis was. Uh, I had hurt my back on the job working construction. So uh, labor and industry insurance was paying for everything. And so the doctors had to continue to write letters to the insurance company because they would say, when are you going to fix this kid? And they'd write letters back. And I had those letters. And, and one of the letters the psychiatrist read was from the head of the Department of Orthopedic Surgery. And it says, dear sirs, as you may not be aware, Mr. McBride's condition is not curable. He will have chronic osteomyelitis for the balance of his life. And because of the severity of the infection and the invasiveness of the procedures needed to keep the drains open, unless Mr. McBride is extremely fortunate, he will be left with significant permanent disability. And the psychiatrist read that letter to me. And he said, Terry, you know, essentially, you're not going to come out of this hole. And I told him, I don't want to believe like you. I mean, it was just like that. I know what you guys believe. I don't want to believe like you. And of course, he didn't say, oh, you have the right to make up your own consciousness. No, what he said was you're in denial. He sent me to serenity prayer. He sent me all kinds of stuff to try to get me to agree with him that what I had was not curable. And so when he, when he was reading all these letters and stuff, I kept saying to him, I'm not my stuff. I'm not my prognosis. I'm not my medical history. I'm not what the doctors say about me. And he kept saying, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? And so when I finally walked out of his office, because he was not going to support me in believing it might be possible for me to get well. He wasn't willing to support me. When I walked out of his office, I thought, you know, if you're not your stuff, who are you? If you're not your history, you're not your education, you're not your, you know, all the stuff that I thought I was, who are you? And that's when I started looking at the I'm a spiritual being having a human experience. You know, they hadn't heard that back then, but that's what I was looking at. Right. um, I wrote an article for the International New Thought Alliance, their monthly or quarterly publication. And what it said was, what allowed me to get well was not just the tools of choice, 
what allowed me to get well was understanding my spiritual identity, the identity of me as a unique expression of the divine. And once I owned that, I moved into using the tools of choice with divine authority. You know, you tell that to most people and they go, you know, who do you think you are? Right, right. It sounds biblical almost. And who wants to believe that we can live through something biblical again when, you know, this is really actually commonplace. Miracles can and do happen all the time. And so what did your family and close friends think all this time? Did you have support from them? Um. None of them were into metaphysics. Karen, my wife at the time, was a rock. I mean, she came to visit me almost every day for 11 years when I was in and out of the hospital. And uh, so I had support and love from that. But I don't I don't think anybody in my family really believed I was ever going to be well. Not after the 10th or 11th or 15th surgery or the 20th surgery and the doctors are saying, this is not going to be. So I I didn't have a lot of support from that, from them saying you can do this. Right. I mean, they they were supportive in that they're going to help you be comfortable and as happy as you could be given the circumstances, et cetera. But as far as, yeah, I can understand that. I can imagine they may have even thought you were a little bit crazy or in denial. Oh, that was absolutely it. I mean, the doctor, you know, the psychiatrist kept saying, you're in denial. And, but that's the, listen, in our, even in our movement, if you don't believe like them, the standard answer is, oh, you're in denial. Really? Right. So I'm supposed to believe like you believe. See, all belief systems create reality. All belief systems. Yeah. And so people can prove the way they believe is true because that's how the universe works. The universe yeah. supports you in your belief system. Right. Yeah, so it it took then, first of all, having this unshakable belief, right? Unwavering faith, unwavering belief. But then again, 11 years, too. I, I wouldn't say unwavering. Really? I think that's, okay. Yeah, I think that's from, uh, I think a lot of the books that are written are from mm-hmm. the top of the ladder looking down. Yeah. And when you're at the bottom of the ladder looking up, it's a whole different game. So when you're at the bottom of the ladder and they're taking you apart a piece at a time and you're having surgery after surgery and trying to recover and in extreme pain, there's no way you can keep your positive. I, at least for me, there was no way I could keep my positive all the time. There was no way I could unwavering belief, absolute knowing. It was no, I mean, that's nice in the books, but it it didn't work that way. And I don't think it does work that way. It's just, those are people writing from the top of the ladder looking down. You've got to have unwavering belief. You've got to know that God absolutely is everywhere. I mean, what the pardon me, but what does that mean? When you're sick and being raped and pillaged, it's like, there were a lot more religious people than me in the hospital that died. Right. So just being religious and just having a relationship with God, what I found for me, now this is just me talking about my belief, but just having a relationship with God doesn't mean that you have 
power and authority over your physical existence. Okay. So what do you think was the extra, I don't know, the extra sauce, the extra special something else that you, you brought to it? What, what made it different in your case, do you think? I was unwilling to give up. When, when they said you cannot expect to come out of this hole, it turned out that the, that night all the pain went away because the infection broke in. When the doctor, six doctors came in, I was in extreme pain. I was taking a major morphine every three hours and they wanted to rush the surgery because uh, of the pain. That night after they came in, all the pain disappeared. The, and the head of infectious disease came in and said, um, why do you think the pain went away? You didn't take any pain meds. And I said, it broke through into my colon. So all the pressure from this fluid of the infection that was pushing nerves against bone, all of a sudden, all that pressure was gone. So they sent me home for two weeks. And so for two weeks, I got to sit there and think that this next surgery is going to, because what they told me was that there's a good chance you're, we can virtually guarantee you when they said this is the surgery we're going to do. Right. We can guarantee you, you are going to lose the use of your left leg. You're probably going to lose a con some control of your right leg. There's a good chance you're going to lose control of your bowels and your bladder. And there's a very good chance you're going to end up sexually impotent. Mm -hmm. And that's when the, the, that guy said, you can't expect to come out of this hole. I mean, so when I was home that two weeks, I remember having a conversation with my Uncle Larry. He was like my dad because my dad was killed in the war and Uncle Larry sort of. We were sitting on his porch one day and we were having a beer and I had turned 18. And he said, you're a man now, son. And because you're a man, there may come a time in your life when you have to fight. He said, I'm not talking about a barroom fight or that stuff. That just gets you in trouble. I'm talking about a real fight. And you may not know that you can win, but you will know when you have to stand and fight. And that's how I approached. That's where the hell I can't came from. Right. I, I'm not sure if I can win, but I do know I have to fight. I have to fight against this prognosis. I have so... My journey was not this wonderful uh, discovery of my own magnificence. It was me declaring I'm bigger and tougher than anything that comes along. That's and that's how I won. Right. That's remarkable. But, and, and over 11 years, I mean, it, you know, it, I, it tweaked. It was a little different, a little different. Uh, uh, now, right. see, see, we have books by uh, Candace Perk wrote a book called The Molecules of Emotion. And in that book, she says that every cell in our body is always paying attention to the energy that's moving through the body. And she called that energy emotion and that you can affect how the cells work by changing the emotions that you're allowing to run through your body. Uh, this is what um, uh, the biology of belief by, uh, oh, his name will come to me, but he says the same thing is that 
that your body is always paying attention to the energy moving through the body. And he called that energy belief, uh, where Candace Perk called it emotion. I'm trying to think. Wasn't that Dr. Joe Dispenza? No, it was. uh, I got a book right here somewhere. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I don't see it right offhand. But um, but it's in the same ballpark as Dispenza, but because he's talking about the same thing. So the idea is to always run this energy through you. What what are you running through? What are your cells gathering this information from the energy running through you? And then what do the cells do? Right. So, so now at 70, um, 77, that's how I start my day. I start my day by concentrating on this energy that's flowing through me. And then I direct each individual cell to take this energy and go do, you know, whatever it is that I'm working on. Um, and I, I did just very quickly search for the biology belief, and that is Dr. Bruce Lipton. Bruce Lipton, you bet. And it's a great book. And that's what he says. Right, right. Biology, right. It's energy. And energy really controls the whole show within our body and in our world. Yeah, what he says is that, that the cell gathers this energy and interprets it and then turns genes on and off or on or off, depending on how the cell interprets the energy. So we can... We can take charge. I mean, what they're saying is you can take charge of yourselves. Yes, absolutely. And that's a game changer for anybody who is dealing with any type of physical issue or disease. And how, how did you know, perhaps when did you know that it was working? How did you first start to see evidence of this? Um. I think the first thing I really noticed was I could take charge of the pain. So um, as I read up on pain, you know, while I was sick, I mean, it wasn't an overnight thing. You know, it took took months and sometimes years. But I began to understand that pain was a, a choice the brain makes. It wasn't about the body part that was in pain, that before you can feel pain, the brain has to make three decisions. And and depending on how those decisions are made by the brain, that's how much pain you will feel. The example I remember was they talked about people in a, a battle situation in war, when they get shot and wounded, they don't feel any pain while they're in the battle. Because the brain, loose translation now, but the brain interprets, if I get them, this person feeling pain and how disastrous this wound is, they won't pay attention to the battle and they might get killed. So we'll feel pain later. Right now, you need to pay attention to the battle. Mm -hmm. Well, it's the same kind of thing. If you can go in and talk to your brain and talk about, listen, body, I understand that we're hurt. I am paying attention to it. I'm doing what I need to be doing. So there's no reason for you to be feeling this much pain. And what I found was I could decrease the level of pain. So I think that was the first, oh my gosh, I have control over my body. 
Um, and then I found that I could, uh, I, when I was first having surgeries, I would always be sick when I came out of the anesthetic. So then I started talking to my body about, look, we're going in for surgery. And I know they're going to cut you open, but this is why they're doing that. So I would talk to my body as if it was my child and love on it and say, look, so you don't have to go crazy because they're cutting on you with a knife. This is why we're doing it. And when we come out of surgery, there's no reason for us to be uh, nauseous. You know, my body's going to handle the anesthetic. So what I began to see was these things that I was declaring happened. Not all the time, but enough that we tweak going, wow, what, I can make a difference in my body. I can make a difference in how it's feeling. And then that just continued to grow about, you know, how I make a difference and what I'm doing on a daily basis to make that difference. It's amazing. And so what did the doctors and the people around you think as you were affecting these changes on your body? Uh, essentially, they said, you're lucky. <laughs> uh, uh, Dr. Theodore Greenlee was the doc, the, the surgeon um, that finally took over my case and listened to me because the rest of the doctors, uh, we're the doctors, we know best, so we don't need your input. But he, he listened to me. Right. And um, in the book, I describe how we together did some surgical procedures and how the last one we did worked. And so years, you know, probably 10 years later, I went back to, I was living in California then, but I went back to Seattle and took him out to lunch. And he remembered me because, you know, it was this huge case. And uh, what he said was, boy, you were sure lucky. Because, you, you know, you, you can't take somebody from the medical profession and say, oh, uh, you know, I have a friend that beat MS. I have a friend that beat ALS. I have a friend that used to be paralyzed and now they're not. I have a friend, I knew a guy that grew his leg three inches in two days. I mean, you say stuff like that to them and they go, you're nuts. You're not telling the truth. Right, right. They and just I have to conceive. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's a... I mean, when I would tell, I told the psychiatrist when I was into him, some of the stories I was reading. And he said, Terry, you're, you're living in a dream world. Things don't work like this. So doctors tend not to go, oh, I, I there was a, uh, a doctor in Canada, a, a psychologist. I was up there on a symposium there were like 12 or 15 speakers and he was one of them and he said that he uh, he was from uh, a college in Vancouver British Columbia and he heard about these uh, healers in the Philippines and so he took a group of doctors over to these healers and they let these there was like 12 doctors and so they'd take a bus up into the highlands and they would watch these healers and they could stand anywhere in the room it wasn't like they were back in the corner and anywhere in the room and watch this healer work and by the time they were done the first day uh out of these 12 doctors most of them were going oh my god we have to explore this 
But there were two doctors in the group that he called psychic bleeders. And on the way home, on the bus trip, which was an hour and 20 minutes or something, they would, oh, no, this couldn't work. You know, poo-pooing psychic bleeders. And by the time they got back to the hotel, none of the doctors were, they still, they thought it was a con job. So they went up the next day. So they did this like for four days. They went up and watched these. And every time he said the doctors by the end of the day were going, you know, with these healers were going, wow, this is incredible. We need to study this. <clears throat> but because of the psychic bleeders, by the time they got back to the hotel, anyway, the doctors went back to the college. He stayed there for another week. When he came back, those psychic bleeders had started a petition to get him kicked out of the college as a teacher because he was leading people astray. Oh my goodness. So that's so that's what happens many times when we try and convince somebody of a, a reality that they're not sure of. Right, that they can't conceive of. They can't even wrap their minds around it. So it can't be true. Exactly. And he also later when he was telling this, he said, we have to understand that these guys had a belief system. This is how the world works. This is how medicine works. And if they accepted this truth that the psychic healers were doing, it would absolutely destroy their whole belief system. And consciousness won't work that way. It won't accept something that destroys your whole belief system. So that's that. A step at a time, a step at a time to allow people to change a little and a little and a little. I mean, I I understand about my power and authority on this physical plane now much better than I did even halfway oh. through the surgery. Right. So it's a dance. It, it is a dance. And were you able to change any minds along the way or at least create some openings in the medical community uh no i mean they they uh like i said dr greenley in seattle uh, um he listened to he listened to what i said about what was going on in my body mm -hmm. but uh and would tailor the surgeries based on the information I was giving him, plus the information he was getting from all the tests. But no, I didn't. In that journey, I didn't convince anybody that, uh, you know, you need to start teaching people how to take charge of their consciousness. It was just way, you know, I, I was just busy trying to survive. Support for the Radiate Wellness Podcast is made possible in part by listeners like you. Would you like to support this podcast? Visit radiatewellnesscommunity.com slash podcast for more information. Absolutely. Well, and you did have some pretty stark prognoses, right? Not being able to use your legs, uh, you know, not having full faculty of your body and everything. Did you have lasting, um, lasting harm from this whole experience? Uh, I don't, I don't think so. Right. Um, 
You obviously can use your legs. You can walk. You have. Yeah. 15 years. The only, the real key was, uh, the only thing that I noticed afterwards was I had a friend who was married to a plastic surgeon. We were having dinner and I kept rubbing my tummy and he said, what's going on with your stomach? Come in tomorrow. And he did an exam and he said, you have so much scar tissue that you're going to have problems with adhesions because right. scars aren't flexible. Right. And so after a while, the tissue that is flexible next to the scar that isn't flexible, the place in the middle gets, and he said, and so he did this major reconstruction. Um, so this, I don't know if you can see this, See that scar? Oh my goodness, yes. That's one of the scars. Oh my goodness, and that's the back of you? That's my back. It was my back. Because oh one God. surgery, after they did that big one, it didn't work. Right. They went in about three inches wide in my back and just took all the tissue out and threw it away. Right. Because so, they said, we, we want to be able to put antibiotic right on the spine. So they cut all the tissue out so they could see my spine. And put me in a body cast for six months. And that was the scar that was left. And so the, the front had scars like that. And so anyway, this plastic surgeon said, I'm going to go in and clean up your scars and put your belly button back in the middle of your you know, stomach. And right. um, But he said, you're probably going to have to have uh, surgeries on these adhesions every couple of years. And so I went home and decided I don't want to do that. So I made all my scars flexible. Oh my uh, and I've never had any more problems with adhesions. Of course, if you tell a doctor, I made my scars flexible, they, oh, no, you can't do that. You're living in a dream world. But I have no problem with adhesions. But that was probably the only long-term uh, thing. Right. That That is amazing. I mean, you've successfully broke the laws of physics and medicine within your own body. And, um, you know, that that's quite an inspiration. And not, you know, in hearing your story and hearing all of the times that tissue was removed, tissue was removed, you have to wonder, at what point is there anything left? And did you, have you been able to regrow tissue, regrow muscles or any of that? Oh, uh, I, I don't know what you mean by regrowth tissue. I, I, I don't think I've ever really thought of regrowing tissue. Um, that big scar in the back that I showed you. Yes. So years later, uh, 20 years later, I'm in California. I spoke at a Science of Mind Center, uh, yes. Center for Spiritual Living. And the platform assistant was a, a practitioner. And it was two services. I told my story, the first service, and how I got used to tools to get well. And during service, he said, boy, you had a lot of problems. And I said, yes, I did. And he said, no, no, you had a lot of problems. I'm the head, I'm a, a general surgeon and the head general of general surgery at this hospital in Torrance, California. Oh, my goodness. Two weeks later, a little... I had some problems with that big scar. I went in to see him and he said, um, 
you need to sew that scar up so your spine, because your spine just has a, a skin graft over it. You need to sew that scar up. And I said, well, the doctor said they don't want to mess it with that because it'll just cause the infection to come back because the infection really never goes away. It just goes into remission. And remission means it's coming back. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look up remission, it says temporary relief of symptoms. It doesn't say curing. So anyway, he said, oh, don't worry about that. So, um, but he said, I want this doctor, a friend of mine downstairs, who's a a plastic surgeon, I want him involved because there's so much tissue gone. I want to, you know, as a general surgeon, I'm good. But he, so anyway, I went down to see him, took off my shirt, dropped my, and he looked at the scar and he said, there is no way we can just sew this up. There's way too much tissue gone. So we're going to have to take tissue from your thighs. So we'll take the same amount of tissue from each thigh. So your thighs aren't, you know, mismatched. And I'm like, yeah. So anyway, I go back up to, um, to Jack, the, my friend, the general surgeon, who was a religious science practitioner. And he said, oh, don't worry about him. What he thinks you and I know better. And he said, I'm not going to be in the operating room, not only as a surgeon, I'm going to be there as a practitioner. And he said, don't tell anybody, but I'm going to have my hands on you. Because he said, I do. I did hands on healing long before I learned you weren't supposed to touch people when you did practitioner work. So anyway, he said, you do your work, I'll do my work. So I went and had the surgery, came out of the anesthetic. I'm in the room and, and these two doctors come walking in. And the plastic surgeon was in the lead and his eyes were like, ow, it was just, and he went, walked in shaking his head. He said, I have been a plastic surgeon for almost 20 years and I've never seen anything (coughs) like what happened with you. He said, we started to take the skin graft off and your tissue just started to move. It was the most incredible thing in the world, how it all moved together. He said, I never would have believed that. And Jack, the practitioner, is behind him going. <laughs> well, that's, that's the kind of stuff we can do. I mean, it isn't just holding the high watch or knowing that all things are to get specific. And I talked to my body and said, this is what I want you to do. Right. This is. After years of working with my body, I can do things with my body that many people can't do because I've been working with it for a long time. So that's why I encourage people, get involved, talk to your body, love it, you know, hold yourself like you would a a, a precious child. Anyway, that's. Well, and this brings me to an important point is that, you know, that was a great story. It was a remarkable story. People might listen to it, read your story, and say, okay, well, that was an anomaly. That was a miracle. That was unprecedented, but it can't happen to me. But you're here to tell us that we can all do this. Well, and if, you re- if one reads the book, it goes step by step how I got well. How I used affirmations, how I used visualization, how I used goal setting, how I used planning. Because, you know, for, for me to sit in the hospital and do an affirmation that says, I, Terry McBride, am now perfectly healthy. 
this little voice inside of me would go, bullshit, you're scheduled for surgery tomorrow morning at eight o'clock. If you're so healthy, what are you doing in the hospital? So I had to learn how do I use these tools, integrate them in such a way so I create belief. It isn't just about affirming or visualizing or setting goals. Those are tools to create belief. So the key is how do you use them? And what the, what the, what the book and my Everybody Wins program do is teach people how to use the tools in conjunction with each other so they can create knowing. They can create belief. Absolutely right. The affirmations, sometimes we say affirmations and it feels like, mm, yeah, I don't believe that. Yeah, exactly. Because that core belief is not formed underneath it to support it and lift it up. You know. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. No, go ahead, please. When I, <clears throat> so when I, after the psychiatrist, I got back to my room and I, I, I realized over a few days, you need to get busy, Terry. Just. <clears throat> just saying no, just saying the hell I can't isn't going to get you well. Right. You need to stop spending your whole day dealing with disease and start spending your day moving towards wellness. Yeah, There's a yeah. vast difference Big between difference. dealing with your disease and doing the same things, but you're doing those things because you're moving towards wellness. Big difference. And so I, what I realized after that, after the psychiatrist and all that stuff was I did not believe I could ever be healthy. Oh. I mean, I was telling everybody to shove it. and No, I don't want to believe like you, but I really didn't believe. So I started with an affirmation that said it might be possible for me to be well someday. And when I would do that, the voice inside would go, you're just kidding yourself. You're just, blah, 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 blah. I'm not saying I'm going to. I'm just saying it might be possible. Right. So every day in the hospital, I remember when I was doing that when I happened to be in the hospital. I wasn't in there for 11 years. But, but you know, I was in there. We used to have 30-day parties, 60-day parties, and 100-day parties. Mm-hmm. Anyway... I remember I was about seven days into it might be possible. And when my mind would chatter and say, no, no, I'd say, "Uh, look, I'm just saying it might be. And after on the seventh day or eighth day, it's in my book. I said, it might be possible for me to be well someday. The internal dialogue said, okay, it might be possible. Which was a huge shift from, oh, no. And so that's when I began to see that using the tools and, you you know, I tell people I'm doing an affirmation that might be possible. Oh, you can't do an affirmation like that. You have to do an affirmation. I am perfectly healthy right now. It's like, uh, give me a break. That's from the top of the ladder looking down. When you're at the bottom of the ladder, you're using the same tools of choice, but how you use them may be different. How I used the tools at the bottom of the ladder when I was looking to to begin to believe is totally different than how I use those same tools today, being healthy and vital and, you know, a great grand spiritual poopah. (laughs) I'm kidding, but anyway. but And so that's the key, is how do I use these tools so it makes a difference in my now? 
Absolutely. And I like just the adjustments. You adjust the affirmation as your belief intensifies and changes. You know, exactly. we're not static people. My goodness. Mm-hmm. Our minds are, our energy is very plastic and we can, we can make these adjustments in our beliefs and our thoughts. And, you know, I'm just so reminded, Terry, of um, Myrtle Fillmore from Unity, you know, founder mm-hmm. of Unity. More than a hundred years ago came up, came upon these principles and healed herself. And you mentioned Science of Mind and Center for Spiritual Living, all of this new thought stuff. And I know that you said you grew up Christian and didn't really know about any of this new thought stuff. No. But I mean, you know, I grew up in the Disciples of Christ Church, which is different than some of the more fundamental, you know. And so it was, right. <clears throat> how do you use this stuff? You know, when Jesus said, as you believe, so shall it be done unto you. What does that mean? Right. That and so I'm that's thinking. where I began to explore that, you know. Um, right. And Myrtle Fillmore, people forget sometimes, Myrtle Fillmore used to spend eight hours a day using the tools to heal this tuberculosis. And so many times people today, they, they go do their affirmation, I'm perfectly healthy, I know that I'm wonderful, and then they move on and they think that works. You, you have to spend enough time, not that there's a, you know, a, 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 a fixed amount that everybody, but you have to spend enough time so when you're done with your work, you go, wow, that made a difference. I think that made a difference. Yeah, that kind one of little thing. affirmation on your bathroom mirror in the morning is not going to do it, in other words. I, I had bath <coughs> affirmations on my mirror, but they were in conjunction with, you know, what was I doing every day? What was, I, what was my focus, my goal-directed action? Was I moving towards health or was I just dealing with disease? Goal-directed, act, you know, focus. Number two was action. What do I need to do to begin to move to this? I can't just sit in my bed all day long and ain't it awful. You know, I have to get up and walk up and down the hall. I have to begin to to pretend like I'm moving towards health instead of just sitting around being sick. And then after the goal-directed action is, so what do I want to think about this illness? What do I want to think about this focus? And once you... Once And what I teach in my Everybody Wins program is that once you get clear on your focus, you have your plan of action, which is doing things that you believe you need to do. It isn't about the latest list. It's your belief in action that gives action power, not the action itself. So you have to be able to go inside, what do I believe I need to do? And then once you get that, what do I? What am I going to think about as a, whenever I think about this focus, this goal, and these action steps? That's our affirmation. Once you get those clear and mostly in writing, then when you go to visualize, all you do is daydream, following your plan of action. Daydream that every time I think about this goal, this is what I think about. Every time I think about this goal, I follow through with action. So you, your your visualization becomes really easy because you because you just go pretend you're following through with your game plan. I love it. Well, let's do take a deeper dive into your program, which is the Everybody Wins program. And so 
when did you decide that you needed to develop this? Maybe bottle up your <laughs> bottle up your recipe. When I graduated from college, I was a certified public accountant. So I was a CPA for a group of years. And then I moved into being an internal auditor. While I was doing that, I was active in the JCs, the Junior Chamber of Commerce. Mm-hmm. And I was a state officer and then a national officer. And there was, a, and they had programs in the JCs called Speak Up JC, which is like Toastmasters. Oh, they, had, they had a, a program called Program for Personal Progress, which was always all about goals and plans. Mm-hmm. They had, and so as a national officer, I would travel around and speak on these ideas. And then I went to, I bought a distributorship from Success Motivation Institute out of Texas and sold programs, the dynamics of goal setting. And after doing that for three years, I thought, you know, this is a great program, but I want to add some spirituality to it. And so then I took a year and wrote my own program and, uh, and then started selling that. And then I had an organization in Seattle where we used to sell to companies and I had you know, 12 full-time salespeople. I have to say that is, that is so impressive. You were dealing with all the surgeries, all of the aftermath of the surgeries, I'm sure therapies and visits and checks and everything else while building this business and building this program. That's, that's impressive. I was mostly done with the, the the real invasive surgeries were the first three or four years after that. You know, they'd go in and open up the drains. What they did was they quit doing the major debridements and just would go in and open up drains so the fluid would drain. Because where the pain came from was when the fluid would build up from the infection and push nerves against bone. Um, So by the time I got to be a CPA, I wasn't in pain, you know, very seldom. I mean, I was still having surgeries every, you know, three three or four months, but it wasn't invasive like in the beginning. Because, I mean, when when they went in and did that big surgery they talked about, they found the lower end of the colon was just perforated. They said there weren't any holes in it. It was like it was just like a sieve. And so I had a colostomy where they pulled my bowels out and attached them to my, and so I went to the bathroom in a plastic bag for a year. Mm-hmm. But then eventually all of that even went away and yep. you were able to have all of your functions of your body. And the book really details how that happened because they didn't want to sew up the colostomy. They didn't want, you know, okay. So how, you know, talking to the doctors, because just, just me <clears throat> deciding this is the way it's going to go, if the doctors didn't want to buy that, they didn't, you know, right. they just say no. They and so doing it. one of the challenges that I talk about when I do workshops is in our movement, we say you can't use these principles to manipulate other people. Of course. Sure you can. Look at Jesus. He raised three people from the dead. He never asked any of them whether they wanted to come back. 
when he, when he healed the centurion, when the Roman legionnaire said, I got a servant and they're sick. And Jesus said, well, let's go fix them. And the centurion said, if you really, you know, have that much power, you can heal him from where you are now. And so Jesus spoke his word and, and the guy got healed. He never asked him whether he wanted to be healed. And so one of the things that I had to look at was the doctors are saying, no, we're not going to do most more aggressive surgeries. And I want them to do more aggressive surgeries. So could I change the doctor's mind? Manipulate, by the way, if you look it up, means to manage artfully and skillfully. Oh. So I would manage the doctor's opinion about me you know, I would manage it artfully and skillfully so they would do what I wanted them to do. Was I manipulating them? Absolutely. <laughs> but not with malicious intent. I know, but see, then, I mean, the psychiatrist, if I said I'm manipulating these people, but not, he'd say, you're, you're trying to manipulate them to get what you believe, and it's not true. I mean, so you have to be careful when you say, well, you can manipulate people as long as it's for the highest and best good of everybody. You can manipulate people as long as there's no malicious intent. You can manipulate people as long as, and then the list just goes on and on. What I tell people is you can manipulate people. You got to figure it out for yourself. Because mm -hmm. that's, that's the power and authority we have. It isn't like, well, you have sort of power, but not just much. And you can't do this. You have to be careful of this. You have to, and that's what we do in our movement. And that's why so many people today in unity and science of mind are sick. Oh, interesting. And you go around speaking to these churches. Mm -hmm. You do this quite a bit. And, um, and most people that come to those are, are not, uh, they have a challenge they're trying to fix. Sure. And sure. go in and ask them. I mean, go to talk to people that are going to unity and say, have you, have you healed your disease? Have you healed your relationship? Have you healed your whatever it is? And, and well, no, but, uh, you know, there may be a, all those, you know, things about, well, maybe this is some karmic debt you're working off. Maybe there's a lesson in here. Those are all variations of the idea. There's probably a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> You've heard, heard that? No. The, op the optimist and the pessimist. The optimist, there's, they're walking down and there's a room full of uh, presents. And the optimist goes in and goes, oh, this is wonderful and all this stuff. The pessimist goes in here, oh, oh, rooms full of horse manure. And the, the optimist goes in there to the room full of horse manure and starts doing this. And somebody says, what are you doing? And he says, with all this horse manure, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> so that's that idea. There's probably a lesson in here for you. There's probably something you're supposed to learn. I mean, those sound real good, but when you're at the bottom of the ladder, just trying to get through one more day, those things don't help. You know, I remember hearing a story of Myrtle Fillmore. Of course, she had tuberculosis, a very, um, very serious disease, and was able to remove all the symptoms and all the, the, the problems with that, considered herself healed. And I heard the story that once she did pass, that they did an autopsy and found that there was still tuberculosis in her body, but she had no sign of it. Ah, had you I hadn't heard, heard that. 
I hadn't heard that. That there was certainly right. So, I mean, does it does it matter if the the physical issue is removed, or does it matter that you have no no further symptoms or signs of it? Well, and and it depends on what you're working for, right? So, uh, um, I, I, I I had not heard the, about the autopsy thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you read that somewhere in the energy stuff? This was this was something that one of the one of the ministers at my church had had said in, during one of the one of the talks, mm. and I thought thought that well, no, that's very interesting. It kind of gives a new perspective, and of course, I would love to to verify that and check it out, but it makes a an interesting thought process that does it matter that the actual disease malady issue is removed or does it matter that you no longer have the effects of it? Um, I, I, I understand what you're saying. I personally would not want that because I'd st- I still have this infection in my spine, although I have no problems with it. I wanted to get rid of the infection in my spine. Sure, so sure. the problem with something like that, just saying is it opens the possibility for people to believe, well, I may not be able to get rid of this thing, but I can get rid of the symptoms, which I anyway. So all things are possible if you believe they are. So what was wrong with Myrtle Fillmore's thinking that she didn't disappear the whole tuberculosis thing? <sighs> God, you can't ever criticize the Fillmore's or Ernest Holmes. But each one of us has has our own journey that we're dealing with, and each one of us has our own healing and responsibility for it. And I, I just love that you took such responsibility for your own healing. That mm-hmm. over time, what I began. So there's a lot of stuff about God's plan for us. Right. Unity, unity in science of mind does not have that. It, it, the fertile more Phil Moore's teachings and Ernest Holmes teachings don't have that. But one of my friends told me years ago, the further you get away from the Christ, the great teachers, the more watered down their uh, teachings become. And so now in unity and uh, centers for spiritual living, there's not as much absolute authority as there was 50 years ago. <clears throat> Um, and and so um, what I began to believe that was when I came out of the psychiatrist office and really took a look at all my notes and all that stuff, what I began to realize was I needed to begin to believe in the possibility that I could change my belief. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's what science of mind and unity are about, changing your belief. They're not about you're holy and so everything works. No, you're holy. That's true. But what you're experiencing in your life is based on your belief system. Right. Exactly. So if you want to change what you're experiencing, change your belief system. Right. Now, what what that moved for me was as if God or the universe was saying, you pick the game and I will play with you there. So you want to have a, a disease and learn wonderful lessons from it and end up a better person because you had this disease and you still have it? Universal, look, here, here. 
and it'll support you in that. But if you, you could also say, I'm not going to have this disease, I'm going to disappear. Or this friend of mine who grew his leg, I'm going to grow my leg, period. That's power and authority. It's not, you know, giving in to anything. It's like, it's your choice. Right. And we get to play the game as we believe we can play the game. Yeah. I love it. So, so what I love about your, uh, you know, I looked at some of your uh, other podcasts mm-hmm. and there people are talking about the power to change their belief, the power to change consciousness. And that's what, that's why I said today is about uh, power. You know, it's like uh, um, moving to understand I have the power to change my belief. And because of that, I have the power to create reality. It isn't about accepting reality. It isn't about going with the flow. That's why in my workshops, I teach, I don't go with the flow unless the flow's going the way I want. If the flow is not going the way I want, I change it. Of course, people say, who do you think you are? That's the key. I am the essence of God expressing uniquely as me. We don't say it very often in unity or science of mind, but that makes us the living Christ, the living truth, the living expression of this universal presence we call God. And other than that, I get to make it up. Absolutely. Yeah, my problem with going with the with the phrase going with the flow is that if you've ever been whitewater rafting and you go with the flow, you're going to run into a rock. You're going to crash into a rock. What you have to do is get above the flow and direct the flow. Exactly. Begin to move with it. Exactly. Exactly. When whitewater rafting, when you see the rapids coming up and rocks coming up, what do you do? The What you want to do is just paddle the heck away from there, but you can't. What you have to do is paddle as fast as you can toward it mm-hmm. to get around it. So, you know, using using that momentum, using the, the power of the situation to change your beliefs, to get ahead of it, to get on top of it. Yes. In a way. And so... If someone is wanting to learn more about what you've done, the program you've created, and your story, where would they find that information? My website, terrymcbride.net. terrymcbride.net. And it has articles on there. Um, there are some video, links to videos. Um, my YouTube channel, you know, I've got videos that talk about the tools of choice. And in in the website, it talks about the book and it talks about the Everybody Wins program, which is a nine week program that you use every day. You listen to a lesson and you, it has some action steps and what over the nine weeks, what you end up exploring and owning is this is how I can create belief. And in lesson nine, which is again, it says, if you've done this program and use these tools 10 minutes a day, like it's laid out, you now understand you can create knowing. I know this is going to happen. And there is the key. There's the key. I absolutely love it. Wonderful. So terrymcbride.net and the program is Everybody Wins. And it's broken down. There's There's recordings. There's templates there's worksheets there's affirmations all of the things in the program and then the book love the title the hell i can't 
<laughs> and so if, if they want the book in hardcover or softcover like that, or a Kindle version, it, on the website, if you click that, mm-hmm. it'll take you to Amazon. Perfect. That's where it's sold. If, if they want an audio copy of the book, then right there on the website, it's, click here and it'll, it sends an email to me and I contact you because I'll send you the, you know, the, the audio right. portion of, audio of the book. Version of the book. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And then, of course, you've got, you know, speaking engagements, et cetera, et cetera, your YouTube channel, which I'm sure is, you know, updated with all of the your newest interviews and talks and, you know, workshops and, and all of that information. It has been it has been such a pleasure and just an eye opening experience speaking with you, Terry. I, I can't thank you enough for joining. Thanks, me. Christy. And I, I appreciate what you're doing, you know, to, to do these kinds of interviews for as long as you've been doing them and posting them. You have no idea how many hundreds of thousands of people you're affecting. I mean, just way to go for doing that. Well, thank you. That's, that's appreciated. I, I think that there's um, information that we all need. And there are so many people, wonderful people out there like you who are living their experiences and talking about them, and we can all learn from them. Yes. Radiate Wellness is a community of holistic and alternative healers and consultants based in the Kansas City area, dedicated to helping you create spiritual, energetic, and physical well-being. To learn more about our practitioners, services, classes, and events, or to schedule an appointment, visit us at radiatewellnesscommunity.com. We spend a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming, yet most of us have no idea what goes on during that time. I'm Kelly Sullivan Walden, and as a dream expert and best-selling author, I'm here to empower you to mine the gold from your nighttime dreams. Join me on the Kelly Sullivan Walden Show, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Until we meet again. Don't take your dreams lying down.